Neutrality, neutrality is a commodity sometimes. Neutrality is a commodity sometimes. And in the spiritual world, in the spiritual dimension, it's a delusion. There is no neutrality when it comes to the person of Jesus Christ. Neutrality is a commodity, and oftentimes uh, we, we, we attempt to be neutral on things. We desire to be neutral on things. But the reality is, eventually we get pushed to a place on one side or on the other side of neutrality. Let me give you an example. In uh, 1939, September 1st, 1939, German forces invaded Poland. Two days later, Great Britain and France declared war on Germany, and World War II began. Uh, U.S. President Franklin Roosevelt vowed that the United States would, quote, remain a neutral nation. That was the goal. When, when the, the, the beginning of World War II started to sort of bubble up and brew, and in Germany started invading uh, these Western countries, uh, Roosevelt said, we're going to be neutral. We're not going to get pulled into this war. Neutrality was the goal. Then in June 22, 1940, so about a year later, Nazi Germany defeated France within six weeks. What a fight they put up. Despite the fact that France had mobilized five million men to fight. Then September 4th, 1941, a German U-boat submarine fired upon an American destroyer, uh, the USS Greer. The Greer evaded the attack and President Roosevelt at that point authorized U.S. ships to shoot German vessels on sight. So you can feel the neutrality that America was trying to hold on to starts to get harder and harder and harder to realize as pressure is starting to be applied by the war that we didn't want to be in. November 4, 1941, diplomatic relations between Japan and the United States were tense. American newspapers informed readers that war between the two countries seemed eminent, but neutrality was still the goal. And then, you guys know, famously, December 7th, 1941, the Japanese attack on the U.S. naval base in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, led President Franklin Roosevelt to declare war on Japan. A few days later, Nazi Germany declared war on the United States, and America entered World War II. Neutrality is a commodity, and sometimes you're thrust into a situation where neutrality is no longer an option. You gotta pick a side. You gotta pick a side. In our text, we're, we're studying through the book of Mark, for those of you that are joining us, we've been looking at it for a few months. So we're just taking it as it comes. We're following Mark's narrative, Mark's story, uh, telling of the person of Jesus Christ. And what we're seeing is we're seeing this new administration led by Jesus, the kingdom of God, is breaking in to the current administration, the kingdom of this world. And if you can imagine in your mind's eye two tectonic plates that are going towards one another, and as they go towards one another, energy, massive amounts of energy is building up. And at some point, there's a slippage. And when there's a slippage, what do you get? You get a massive earthquake. And sometimes these tectonic plates actually push up mountain ranges and all kind of all kinds of effects on the face of the earth. And, and oftentimes we don't even know that these seismic differences are happening around us, right? And then something exposes it. So what's, what we're seeing here is we're seeing Jesus' kingdom, Jesus the king and his kingdom coming into this world in our story, and it's pushing up these dividing lines. 
dividing lines between the institutional religion of Judaism, dividing lines between crowds and followers, between the demonic realm and, and the spiritual realm that follows after God. These dividing lines are starting to, to prop up. And this is really the title of this morning's teaching is Dividing Lines. It's what we're looking at this morning. And this morning we're going to see some severe dividing lines appear right before us in the text with two particular groups of people. One group is Jesus' biological family. We don't hear a ton about Jesus' biological family. It's kind of interesting. The other group is the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. Now let me ask you a question, and this is kind of what I'm hoping to help answer for you this morning. Have you ever wondered which side you're on? Have you ever wondered? Maybe, maybe you've, you've said that you're a Christian your whole life. You claim to be a Christian your whole life. You, you've sort of selected that box on your social media or, or whatever it is. But oftentimes, if you're really being honest with yourself, you, you just wonder, am I really a Christian? Do I really know what that means? How do I know if I think I'm on one side, but I'm actually really on the other side? It's the question I'd like to, to kind of wrestle with this morning. Because I think it's the question that our text actually answers. I think it's the, the answer, it's the question that our text really forces us to grapple with. If there are dividing lines between this kingdom and his kingdom, which side are we truly on? And as the mountains begin to grow between this side and that side, which side will you find yourself on? So let's dive right in. We're just going to work through the text. We're in Mark chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 20. Verse 20 says, And when he went home, it's probably Peter's home. It's kind of his home base in the frame. When Jesus went home, the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. What an interesting passage to start with. What an interesting passage. We have Jesus preaching. This is in the, the preaching season of his ministry. And as he's preaching, the crowds are beginning to grow. Not so much because of his message, but more because of his power. Jesus is literally healing people. He's literally raising people from the dead. He's literally casting out demons. And I'm not talking about healing back pain or arthritis like all the phony healers do on TV today. He really is seriously healing people. Like, like he's healing people in such a way that you can't argue with it. It's not like the, the guy in the wheelchair that gets stuffed in the back of the room in the dark room with all the smoke. And then they bring the person that has heal him. No, he's literally telling people that have been in wheelchairs their whole life to stand up. He's telling paralytics that have laid on beds their whole life to stand up. He's, he, he's healing in a creative way, meaning he's recreating bodily parts and broken pieces of human flesh that hadn't been there for years. His power is undeniable, so the crowd is growing. And Mark always sort of highlights this word crowd. Crowd comes up a lot. And even though this is kind of foreign for our Western mindset, we think of the bigger the crowd, the, the, the more true the message. But in reality, sometimes the bigger the crowd, the more problems. The crowd isn't forming because there's all these people that want to follow Jesus. The crowd is forming because there's all these people that want to see the freak show. There's these people that want to see entertainment. They want to know what's going on. They've heard about this rabbi from Galilee that's, that's causing all of these miraculous things to happen. So this big crowd forms, and Jesus is ministering day after day after day, night after night. He's pouring himself out to his own physical detriment. He's not eating. He's not caring for himself. So you have Jesus doing this ministry, and then you have his family. Now, who is Jesus' family? Well, it, it tells us it's his mother, Mary, and his brothers. Did you know Jesus had brothers? Half-brothers. 
Okay, half-brothers, but Jesus had half-brothers. After Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph, they had a family. He probably had sisters, too. We don't, I don't know that it mentions it in the scripture, but he had brothers. They were his half-brothers. Uh, we know at least some of their, their names. James, Joseph, Jude, and Simon were four of Jesus' half-brothers. So these guys are, are watching from a distance, and they're seeing Jesus' ministry, and they're starting to get concerned about their dear brother, Jesus. Maybe he's out of his mind because he's ministering so fiercely and he's not even taking care of himself. So their plan is this. They're going to go, they're going to find Jesus and they're going to seize him. That word seize is is a violent word. They're going to literally take him by force. They're going to take him captive. They're going to lead him out and they're going to straighten him out. They're going to straighten him out because he's got to be out of his mind. He's got to be out of his mind, right? Now, it's interesting most people at this point didn't really understand who Jesus was. They didn't really know. They may have had an expectation or a hope or a desire, but many of them really didn't know, including his family. Have you ever thought about that? What did Jesus' family think about him while he was doing his three-year ministry? Well, the Gospel of John actually tells us, if you're quick and you can turn over there really quickly, John chapter 7, we get a little bit of a clue into what Jesus' family actually thought about him while he was doing ministry. John chapter 7, verse 1, it says, After this, Jesus went up in Galilee, or went about in Galilee. He went, or he would not go up into Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. This is a a big feast that happened every year, and all the Jews would migrate into Jerusalem. So there'd be thousands and thousands, crowds, tons of people. The feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Oh, there's his brothers. And they said to him, Leave here. Go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret. If he seeks to be known openly, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then John gives us some commentary. For not, listen, for not even his brothers believed in him. This is an interesting scene here. His brothers are trying to help Jesus out. Hey, buddy, let's give you a hand. You need some PR help. Why don't you go to the urban center? Why don't you go to Judea where all the people are? And when you get there, you can start doing some of the miracles that you've been doing here. And then it will exponentially platform you. Your followers will grow. You'll get more likes. You'll get more people interested in what you're doing. Okay? Um, now, they, they may have been genuinely trying to help their brother out. But regardless, uh, it's interesting that they say, hey, go do miracles in Jerusalem for your disciples. His disciples are seeing him do miracles all the time. What are they talking about? Well, if you trace it back just a little bit in John, something happened right before this moment. What happened was is that a massive wave of his disciples left. They left because they were scandalized by his teaching. They left and they didn't follow him any longer. So you can imagine Jesus' family sees this happen. They're like, man, Jesus is bleeding followers. His following is going. Like, he needs a PR guy. He needs some help. Let's go straighten him out. Jesus, here's what you got to do. You got to go to Jerusalem, and you got to do work there so everybody can see you. And Jesus' response, we don't have time to get into it, but Jesus' response is basically like, you're thinking like a non-believer. You're thinking like the world. You're doing world thinking. You're not thinking like a believer. The, the, the family of Jesus didn't get it. They didn't understand. John explicitly says they were unbelievers. So here we are back in our text in Mark chapter 3, verse 20. And they're, again, they're going to come straighten Jesus out. 
He's lost it. He's not taking care of himself. He's got, he, he must be out of his mind. Now, they haven't disowned him, but they have disdained him by mistaking his radical obedience for insanity. Now, can any of you relate with that? Any of you Christians in here, can you relate with that? You get saved, and your family's like, you're crazy. Okay? Now, for, for some of you, it may not be that your Christian family or your non-Christian family thought you were crazy. For some of you, it might have been your Christian family that thought you were crazy. Hey, we're all good with Christianity, but can you just tone it down a little bit? Like, can we just have Thanksgiving without you wanting to pray and talk about the gospel? Like, you're just being a fanatic. Calm down. I've heard so many people that get saved, and the first thing that out of their family's lips is, you're not going to turn into one of those crazy fanatics, are you? I mean, a lot of Christians can relate with this, right? Hey, Jesus, we're cool with this whole Messiah thing. We're cool with this whole preaching thing, but can you just dial it back and eat some lunch? You're, just, you're, you're going a little too far, a little too crazy. This is the way that they're thinking. To world thinking, radical sacrifice for God is paramount to insanity, isn't it? giving your life away for something other than yourself to the world thinks think they think that's insane. Just a little side note application here. Beware of people that overuse the oxygen mask analogy. Have you heard the oxygen mask analogy? It's like our favorite analogy in the West because what it reminds you of is that you get to put you first. And we go, yes, that's right, me first. And it's a good analogy, right? Like, yeah, you can't help anyone in the plane unless you put your own oxygen mask. I get it. But I hear people use it all the time, and I think Western Americans love it because we're like, that's right, me first. I know that person really needs help right now, but i got to put my own oxygen mask on. That's not really what we see modeled by Christ. We actually see Christ modeling radical, uh, a radical life of spending himself even to the own detriment of his own nourishment. That, that's actually the model that we see. So yeah, put your own mox, oxygen mask on, but to a Western audience, that's an excuse to just continue to do nothing for anyone else but yourself. Jesus was radically spending himself for others, and he is the model for us. Now, interestingly, Mark here, he doesn't continue on in the story. He takes an interruption, and he starts talking about something else, but he's going to come back to it at the end of the sermon. He's going to come back to it at the end of our text, and he's going to sandwich uh, what happens with Jesus' family. So take that in your head, set it aside. We're going to come back to it in about five minutes, ten minutes, okay? Now, verse 22, the scribes who come down from Jerusalem. Now, these are the big boys. These are the big hitters. These are the, the heavy hitters up the bureaucratic pipeline in Jerusalem. So these, um, you know, these Galilean scribes have been interfacing with Jesus to no, to no avail. And so they send word up the line. And now the bigwigs show up, the guys with lots of letters in front of their names. They show up, and they're going to shut Jesus down, right? So they show up, and here's what they say to Jesus. They say, they're saying he is, Jesus is, possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. Why are they saying this about Jesus? Why are the scribes accusing Jesus of being uh, or doing his power under Satan? Well, the answer is, is that they are forced to do this by their own unbelief. They don't have a lot of options left. They've already decided in their mind that they have refused to see Jesus as their Lord but they also simultaneously cannot refute the miracles that he's been performing because they're not, again, they're not dark room curing arthritis, okay? This is real miraculous acts. The Pharisees cannot deny it. 
but they refuse to bow the knee to Jesus. So what are they left with? Only one option, okay? Demonize him. Isn't that exactly what we do with people? If we don't like them, we don't want to submit under them, and we can't really find anything wrong with them, then we just demonize them. This is what they do with Jesus. He's of the devil. In fact, he's of this Beelzebul. What is that? That's not a common word that we hear even for those of us that read the Bible. It's like, what is Beelzebul? Beelzebul literally translates Lord of the dwelling, and it basically means he is the prince of the power of the air. He is the prince of the demonic. He is uh, the, the Lord of all that is the Antichrist kingdom. And I'm not trying to weird you out. I'm not just trying to freak you out. But in reality, the spiritual dimension in many ways is more real than the physical dimension. Because the physical dimension we don't really understand. The spiritual dimension actually is where God exists primarily in spirit. And there is a war going on in that spiritual dimension. And it affects you. And there is a figure in the scripture, sometimes called the Satan or the prince of the power of the air, who rules over the dark and demonic dimension of this world. And it is radically opposed to the kingdom of Christ. It's just worth noting that. <clears throat> Ephesians 6, 11 says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You can research this later if you'd like, if you want to nerd out, but Deuteronomy 32, uh, Moses says that God divided the nations according to the sons of God. That's angelic beings. Very likely demonic angelic beings. That means that there is literally demonic strongholds in geographical locales. Makes so much sense when you consider the the darkness that uh, that has existed in some of these places for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Do you think Jesus is waltzing into a friendly environment? He's waltzing into a battlefield. He's behind enemy lines. He's been parachute dropped into Satan's world. And his kingdom is now from behind enemy lines, blossoming and blooming out, and it's making everybody angry. <laughs> this is what's happening. And now they're accusing Jesus of being on Satan's team. And look at what Jesus' look at Jesus' answer in verse 23. He called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. Basic logic. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Okay, Jesus, he's not having to swing at the fences to undo this accusation. He's like, are you guys kidding me? Satan may be dumb enough to rebel against God, but he's not dumb enough to run a sloppy organization. There is no division in the kingdom of Satan. They're unified, and they are absolutely unified in opposition to the kingdom of Christ. You think that Satan is dumb enough to let some person with his power cast out demons from people? No. Foolishness. It's ridiculous. He unhinges, uh, disassembles their accusation because it's logically uh, fallow. It's logically flawed. Now, just a little side note here. Jesus does not undermine or understate the power of Satan. Rather, he overcomes it. But what Jesus doesn't do is he doesn't say, oh, that's not really real. There is no demonic realm. No, there is. 
And this world has been handed over temporarily to the prince of the power of the air. C.S. Lewis did a really good job capturing this in his allegory, The Lion and the Witch and the Wardrobe. And when Susie enters Narnia, it is covered in snow because it has temporarily been handed over to this white witch who thinks she's the queen of Narnia, but she's not. She's temporarily been given jurisdiction. This is what Satan does, what Satan is at this present point. Now notice what Jesus says next. This is really good news, by the way. Verse 27, he says, But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Okay, what is Jesus getting at there? Here's the logic. First of all, you don't ransack your own house, right? Okay. Second of all, you don't ransack Satan's house unless you first bind him, right? Third of all, thirdly, thirdly, you can't bind Satan. Listen, you can't bind Satan unless you're stronger than Satan. Which Jesus is implying that he what? He is. Fourthly, don't miss it. No one's stronger than Satan but God. Who is Jesus? He is God. He has bound the enemy and is actively plundering his house. That's good news. That's good news. What does that mean? How has he bound the enemy? Well, he bound the enemy <clears throat> the moment that he came up out of the baptismal waters at age 30, and Satan threw everything that he had, everything that worked on Adam didn't work on Jesus. He rejected the temptation of Satan to skip the cross and go to the crown, and systematically in that moment bound Satan, and for three years, Jesus is walking around Plundering the house. What is the plundering? It is the releasing of souls. It is the freedom of the darkness that Satan has had and foothold in this, in this world for so many years. Every time Jesus preached the gospel and someone heard it and was set free, every time someone had a demon cast out, every time someone was healed, the kingdom is breaking in. And, and if you want to see the lion and the witch in the wardrobe picture, the snow is melting the snow is melting because Satan has been bound and his house is being plundered. You know, one of the coolest things about being a Christian is seeing Satan's house plundered right in front of your eyes. This is what happens when the gospel is preached and people are set free in a way that the world cannot describe or understand. Have you ever seen that before? Have you ever seen somebody that was <clears throat> born into generational sin their father and their father's father and their father's father was a wife beater or an alcoholic or a drunkard or an adulterer. And then all of a sudden, the, the kingdom of God comes into that person's life. Satan becomes bound in their life and they become a new human and they start an entirely new life. It's one of the most beautiful things to get to see. That's the power of the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus has bound the enemy and is plundering his house now. He's plundering his house in this room right now. If you are hearing the gospel and it's working in your life, it's because Satan has been bound in this moment by the power of the gospel. And as Christians, we get to go out and plunder the house. It's a beautiful reality. Now, verse 28 needs a little bit of work here <laughs> because it's the verse that Christians read and go, uh-oh, did I do that? Am I in trouble? Okay, here's the verse. I'm, we've all read it. If you've read the Bible and you've read the book of Mark or anything, you've read this verse and gone, uh, what does that mean? 
Here's what Jesus ends with. Now, he could have just said what he said and moved on, but rather he shoots a warning over the bow of the the scribes. He gives them a Pearl Harbor moment, and he says this really hardcore thing in verse 28. He says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven. Oh, good. The children of men. That's good news. Whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. That is referred to as the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's a verse that people, when they read it, they kind of freak out a little bit. Oh, did I do that? (laughs) Have I done that? Have I blasphemed the Holy Spirit? What an an interesting thing. Let me just spend two minutes unpack, okay, five, five minutes unpacking this and help you understand, because it actually has something to say for our, our passage as a whole. What does it mean to have blasphemed the Holy Spirit? Well, let me tell you what it doesn't mean, what it can't mean, according to other scripture. It can't mean that, that you've blasphemed the Holy Spirit if you've questioned the validity of the, of the miraculous. Okay, so if I see Benny Hen up there being a doofus, swinging his jacket at people, saying that they're healed, and, and, and I say, that's actually the other team, <laughs> and then I end up being wrong. It doesn't mean I've committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and we know that because the disciples were often not sure what was actually Jesus and what wasn't. Remember, there was other people preaching, and they say, hey, what about these guys? Should we go rebuke them? Okay, and, and Jesus is like, no, they're on my team. So, so clearly, it can't mean that. It also can't mean taking Jesus' name in vain. Anybody ever taken Jesus' name in vain? Okay, doesn't mean that. Uh, explicitly doesn't mean that. For one, because Matthew's account says it doesn't. It says even if you take my name in vain, Jesus says you're, you're good. Um, and Peter did it. Peter did it. I mean, he cursed, to, to, he cursed against Jesus. I don't know that man. Bleepity bleep. I don't know him, right? And, and, and Peter was forgiven of that, so it can't mean that. It also can't mean that in sincerity you believe Jesus is not really God or evil. Otherwise, Paul would be disqualified. Paul the Apostle was a Jesus hater, but he was sincerely a Jesus hater. He thought Jesus was not the Messiah, and he went <clears throat> around killing Christians. And it also can't mean that it is a, a, some kind of a sin that you later repent of. It can't mean that. If you're worried right now that you've done it, then you probably haven't done it yet. Okay? Just take a breath. What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Well, look at verse 29 in, verse, in light of verse 28, okay? Listen to what John Piper says. He says, verse 29 is not an exception to verse 28. Jesus is not saying that all blasphemies you repent of will be forgiven, except blasphemy against the Spirit. He's saying that all blasphemies that you repent of will be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven because it's very nat- by its very nature, it puts you beyond repentance, So to clear this up, I think we need to understand what the work of the Spirit is and then figure out what it means to blaspheme it. The work of the Spirit is to bring you to a place of conviction. The Spirit is the one that convicts you, reveals the truth to you, and then gives you the ability to respond to that, to repent and be saved. The Spirit of God is the one that makes you born again when you become a Christian and then incorporates you into the body of Christ. So to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to tell the Holy Spirit, I will not Look at the truth. I'm closing my eyes, I'm plugging my ears, and I don't want to hear it. That's, I believe, the blasphemy here. Here's, let me put it as concisely as I can. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not an action, it is a posture of the heart. It is not a slip of the tongue, it is a condition 
of the heart. We need to ask the question, who is the one that Jesus is warning that they might be blaspheming this Holy Spirit? It's the scribes. It's the scribes. Why are the scribes in danger of blaspheming the Holy Spirit? Listen, because they know the truth. They were there when Jesus popped out of the water and the Father spoke from heaven and the Spirit descended like a dove. They know the scriptures. They've seen the miracles. They know the truth and they refuse to believe it. Therefore, they have blocked, stiff-armed the Holy Spirit from doing any convicting work in their heart. Repentance is not an option because they have made it not an option for them. And therefore, they have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Sam Storms puts it this way. He says, the miracles Jesus performed were the credentials of heaven. This then was not a one-time momentary slip or an inadvertent mistake in judgment. This was a persistent, lifelong rebellion in the face of inescapable, undeniable truth. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, therefore, is not just unbelief, the sort of unbelief or rejection or doubt that is so typical in the world. This is defiance of what one knows beyond any shadow of it out to be true. It is not mere denial, but determined denial. Not mere rejection, but wanton, willful, wicked, wide-eyed rejection. So what's the point? Why is it in our passage? The point is, is that the <clears throat> Pharisees need a Pearl Harbor moment. They need a Pearl Harbor moment, a moment where they're, they're trying to, to, to uh, pretend as though they're neutral, but in reality they're not. And Jesus is warning them that if you continue to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, if you continue to reject the truth, at one point the truth will no longer speak to you and you get your wish. It's a terrifying reality. It's a terrifying reality. Now, Mark, in the narrative, as we read it, all of a sudden comes back to the biological family of Jesus. Now, we're going to finish the story, okay? Now, we come back to the biological family of Jesus. Remember, they think he's out of his mind. They're coming to seize him, um, and, and they show up at the house. And let's look at it, verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him, and the crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. So let me paint the picture. Uh, Jesus is in a small house with his disciples, his true disciples, not the crowds, the disciples. And they're seated, it would have been very similar to this, but smaller, they're seated, and Jesus is teaching, and they're interacting, and there would be conversation. And as this is happening, Jesus' biological family is coming to save the day, Right? They're going to come seize Jesus and carry him away because he's out of his mind. And so they come and they knock on the door and they say, excuse me, is Jesus here? Expecting to be shown preference. Expecting to get the backstage pass. Expecting, hey, we're the fam. Yeah, do you know what? Yeah, Mary, have you heard of me? Yeah, mother of Jesus. Uh-huh. Yeah, these are my sons, brothers of Jesus. Can you please let us in? We'd like an audience with Jesus. Doesn't seem like a, a, a big thing to ask when it's your own family, Right? Well, what does Jesus say? 33. He answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? Can you imagine? It's like my mom comes to the door and like, Hey, it's your mom. And I'm like, Who's my mom? <laughs> Don't got one. How would you feel? Not very loved, right? This is kind of drastic. This is kind of dramatic. It's kind of polarizing. What's Jesus doing here? And he looked around, and it gets better. He looks around at his disciples, those who sat around him, and he said, here is my mother, probably pointing at a woman. Uh, here is my brothers. For whoever does the will of God 
is my brother and sister and mother. What a statement, Jesus. What a statement. Why is he doing this? Why this jarring, exposing moment? Why is he embarrassing his family? It would have been embarrassing for them, wouldn't it? You show up to talk to your son, and he snubs you. He doesn't even snub you. He gives away your title to someone else. Catholics probably don't like that verse very much, considering they really, 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 really like Mary. They won't even admit that she had more kids, right? Because it somehow taints her holiness, whatever. Okay, so this is really a bizarre thing here. This is a bizarre thing, but it's not so bizarre when you remember what they're here to do. Why are they knocking on the door? They're knocking on the door because they think Jesus is crazy because they're unbelievers. (laughs) They don't see him as Lord yet. They're here to take him captive and feed him a snack, right? Help him out a little bit because he's out of his mind. And Jesus knows that. And he takes this teachable moment in order to say something that his disciples need to hear and something that his family needs to feel. Let me say that again. He takes this moment to do something that his disciples need to hear and that his family, his biological family, needs to feel. So first, what does his biological family need to feel? They need to feel that they are not part of the kingdom of God at this point. They need to feel that. They need to feel. They don't need to be coddled right now. They need to be pressed. Jesus is loving. This is a Pearl Harbor moment for them. Hey, are you following me or not? Is really what Jesus, he's drawing a line in the sand for his bio family, and he's saying either you see me as Lord or you're not really my family. It might seem harsh, but it's not really when you think about the eternal thing here. Jesus wants his family to enter the kingdom of God. That's what he wants. This statement is meant to affect him. Jesus is making the point here that saving faith manifests true obedience. Now, does it surprise you at all that Jesus is saying this to Mary? I mean, Mary knew who Jesus was, right? An angel appeared to her, told her what was going on. I mean, she sings Mary's Magnificat in the book of Luke. I mean, she gets it, right? So why is Mary being treated like an unbeliever here? Because she is an unbeliever. See, how can she be an unbeliever? It's actually very simple. Mental assent is different than saving faith. See, Mary might believe that Jesus is the Lord, but Mary doesn't yet believe that Jesus is her Lord. And there is a difference. There's a lot of people in the church, the church, that believe that maybe Jesus is God. Doesn't mean they're saved. The demons believe and tremble, the Bible says. Just because you assent mentally to the fact that Jesus may be God, may be Messiah, doesn't make you a believer. What makes you a believer is the surrender of admitting that to yourself, that he is my Lord and he's my God. That's the difference. And that's why obedience is such a clear sign of true faith. We're not saved by our faith, or we're not saved by our obedience, but our true faith often produces obedience. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's simple. If you love me, you're going to do, if I'm your Lord, then I'm going to lord over your life. If I'm your king, then you're going to ask me what I think. You're going to follow me. You're going to serve me. That's what a believer is. Believer in the West has been denigrated into this thing where you just say, yeah, sure, I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. No. A believer is a follower, and a follower is a believer, and you're not a believer unless you're following. Jesus called disciples to follow him, not to check a box and say, sure, I'll pick that camp. means nothing. If you were in Iran right now, you wouldn't check that box because you'd lose everything. 
A believer follows Jesus. He becomes the Lord of your life. He's not just your Savior, he's your Lord, and he must become both. Saving faith acknowledges Jesus as both Lord and Savior. You want his atoning blood to forgive you and and send you into eternal dwelling with him? Then he's your Lord, too. The two come together. Now, could this, I just wonder, I'm speculating. I'm I'm, I'm going to give away a point of my sermon here. Jesus' family did become believers. And I wonder if this wasn't the catalyst moment for that. What if Jesus just didn't love his family enough to just say, hey, can I just apply enough of pressure right now <laughs> to let you guys know that, that you're not treating me like Lord, you're trying to Lord me. And many people try to do that with Jesus. Now, he's not their Lord, they're trying to Lord him. They've tried to make him their Lord that they control. So he says this to his bio family. He also says this to his disciples. This is not only a lesson for his biological family, it's also a lesson for his disciples because he's literally just given them the position of family now. (laughs) And they're kind of wondering, well, what's with that? Okay. What Jesus is trying to teach his disciples here by backstage passing them and snubbing his family uh, is not to diminish physical family. It's not to diminish earthly family. It's to elevate the spiritual family. Uh, Let me just make this really clear. Uh, The family that you have in Christ is a deeper, more eternal, more lasting relationship than the one you have with your own biological family. It's just true. And I know it's hard to believe, especially if you're looking at the dysfunction of the church. Like, these guys hate each other. Well, that's called sin. Jesus is going to deal with that. But the, the, the connectivity that we have in Christ is so deep and so eternal and so lasting. And can I just say, if you're not part of that family, come in. You need to be in the family of God. There's no family like God's family. You will never be loved the way that you need to be loved until you come into a community that has been loved perfectly. See, that's why Christians should be able to love so well, because we've been loved so well by Christ. We have nothing to give and everything, we have nothing to receive and everything to give. We've been given it all in Jesus. There's this peculiar family dimension that Jesus is actually elevating in front of his disciples and saying, the family that we have is eternal and it's beautiful and you should be glad that you're in it. Salvation, by the way, salvation is incorporation into a community, not an individual experience. I know I talk about this all the time, but I'm going to say it again. In, we, in the Western Christianity, we've turned Christianity into a single sport like golf, where you're on your own team. It's never meant to be that way. It's a corporate experience. You become part of a family. That's what you're baptized into a single organism of all these different parts, and you need each other. It's the community, and that's, by the way, one of the most um, prolific things that made the gospel take off like wildfire in the first century was the way Christians loved each other. Jesus said they will know you are Christians by your love. Christianity is not a singular sport. It's a team sport. And it's a battle zone. You need each other. Okay, so what's the big idea? We've looked at the text. We've seen Jesus interacting with these two different groups, uh, his family and the scribes. And what really Jesus is doing here is he's drawing these stark dividing lines for each of these groups. So what's the big idea? Let's get out of the weeds here and try to put all this together. What we're seeing here is we're seeing two different dividing lines exposed. Jesus has drawn a line in the sand between the scribes, and he's drawn a line in the sand between his family. And there's something similar between these two groups. You know what it is? Unbelief. Both groups are victim to unbelief. But here's the difference. 
The difference is even though both groups have unbelief and the trajectory seems to be similar, the outcome is totally different. It's totally different. Both groups may have the same problem, but each group's trajectory leads to very different outcomes. Let me tell you what happened to these two groups, okay? Here's what happened to the scribes. The scribes hated Jesus so much that their hatred grew to the point where they lit, literally killed Jesus on the cross. Spoiler alert, that's what happens at the end of the book. Okay, If you want to shut God up, you will. It will grow. If you really just don't want him to be the Lord of your life, it'll grow. And it'll grow to the point where you literally put him on the cross. And then it gets worse. Jesus raised from the dead. <laughs> okay, And then they tried to silence the resurrection. That's how hard their hearts were. They would do anything to shut down the pressure of having to worship Jesus as Lord to the point of literally covering up the most spectacular, miraculous thing that's ever happened in human history, the resurrection of God's son. It's unreal. You remember the parable of uh, the rich man and Lazarus? Lazarus gets, uh, this is parabolic story, Lazarus gets taken up to, to, to um, Hades or whatever, and he, he says to uh, Moses, he says, send me back so I can warn everybody, right? And they're like, it doesn't matter if you warn them. He says, he said to him, if, if, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Jesus literally rose from the dead. Still, it wasn't enough to convince the Pharisees. If your heart is hard, if you don't want to believe in Jesus, you won't believe in Jesus. You'll carry it out all the way to completion. But there's another group. There's the biological family of Jesus. And this story actually has a good ending. The biological family of Jesus, when we zoom out and we look at the whole of the Bible, we find out that the biological family of Jesus ended up becoming true disciples. They ended up becoming true followers of Jesus. See, as the revelation of Christ began to unfold, his brothers and his mother began to soften. Particularly the resurrection for, for them was enough. The resurrection was enough. And it says in the Bible that, they, that specifically Jesus, he appeared to James. He made sure to appear to James. I can just imagine James was like arms crossed, like, I'm not following my brother. Are you kidding me? Can you imagine your brother following you as Lord? What would it take? Let me just ask you, what would it take for you to worship your brother as God? Before I take a resurrection. That's what it took for James. His brother came back from the dead. And then he ascended to heaven. And that was enough. James wrote scripture. Did you know that? Jesus' brother, James, wrote scripture. The book, you'll never guess the title. Do you know what it is? It's called James. Go read it this week. Read the book of James. When you're reading it, you're reading about the person that was going to go capture Jesus because he wouldn't eat lunch. That's the same guy. Same guy. He wrote scripture. Uh, Jude. You ever heard of it? It's a tiny little book in the New Testament. You know who wrote that? Jesus' brother, Jude. He became a believer. Not only did they become believers, they became apostles. James was the leader of the Jerusalem movement of Christianity. We see Paul interacting with him when Paul came to Jerusalem. Both Jude and James, listen to me, both Jude and James opened up their epistles with these words, James, Jude, slave of Jesus Christ. How do you go from being an unbeliever to saying Jesus is your master to the point where you would denigrate yourself even to a slave? Willingly, because your master is just that good. These guys had a radical transformation. They had a radical transformation. And Mary, what, do we, what happened to Mary? We see Jesus on the cross taking the time to make sure that Mary was cared for because she 
was not only his mother, now she was part of his true spiritual family. Isn't it a blessing when your family is not only your family, they're also your spiritual family? What a blessing that is to have. What's my point here? My point is, is that trajectory can, can, can be monitored in the, in the moment, but, but the outcome proves it all. The outcome proves it all. Our text contains within it a warning and a blessing, and I want you to hear them both. Okay, the warning is this. The spirit can be quenched to the point where he no longer speaks. Some of you need to hear that this morning. Keep rejecting Christ, and at some point, he will stop speaking. It's just true. It's a warning. But here's the blessing. The blessing is that the spirit can overcome human doubt. Faith is not the absence of doubt. Did you know that? Some people think that. They think, well, faith means I have to shut off all my doubts. I have to get rid of all my questions. It's good to have questions. Questions means you have a brain. The Bible is very logical, and it has good answers for your questions. Faith doesn't mean you don't have any doubt. Look at Doubting Thomas. Okay? The, the, the Bible doesn't say you're not allowed to have doubt. You are allowed to have doubt, but you need to have doubt with a soft heart, with a listening ear. And like the brothers of Jesus, if you have an open ear, he's going to lead you to the truth. Isn't that good news? It's great news. So there's three postures you can take towards Jesus. There's three postures. Either you can write him off, you can rein him in, or you can release control. I'm just curious who you are out of these three, okay? First, you can write him off. You can say, uh, yeah, he's not good, or he doesn't exist, or I refuse to believe in him. That's what the scribes did. Or you can rein him in. That's what Jesus' family tried to do. And a lot of, a lot of so-called Christians do this. They, they say they're followers of Jesus, but they've actually changed his message to something that's less offensive, or, they've, or they, they, they receive him, but they don't really follow him. They don't really worship him. Okay, that's, that's lording over Jesus. Or there's the third category, and that is to be a disciple. And a disciple is one who is disciplined under the leadership and the tutelage of Christ. That means that you do what we see them doing in the text here. You, you sit at his feet, and you listen to him. You ever wonder why Christians get together every week and we open the Bible? You ever wonder why we do, well, we do this? Because that's what Christians do. Christians listen to their master. And their master has spoken in the word. And we want to hear about him. We want to learn about him. We want to become students, apprentices, disciples of Christ. That's what Christianity is. We need to read God's word and we need to let God's word read us. We need to sit under it every day. I, I say this particularly to young guys when they say, you know, I just don't have time to read my Bible. I'm like, it's not about reading your Bible. It's about sitting under the weight and authority of God's word every day. It's not about accumulating knowledge. Have you guys seen the movie Thor? Remember when Thor puts his hammer on Loki's chest and he can't move? That's what you need, especially as guys, because we like to be in control. We need God's word to sit on our chest every day. We need to be under the authority of God's word because he's a good master, because he's Lord. Would speak, press me, challenge me. I need to grow. I don't want to become dull of hearing. We need to practice obedience. So if you're straddling a fault line, I would encourage you to figure out which side you're on because as the mountains begin to become huge, you might find yourself on the wrong side. If you're straddling a fault line, pray that God gives you a Pearl Harbor moment because what Christianity is, it's not, it's not a cakewalk, it's a war zone. Christianity is a war zone and you need to enter the war. If you're a Christian and you're pretending like it's not a war zone, you're kidding yourself. 
There's a real enemy out there who wants to take down your soul, take down your salvation, and bring you back into his house because you've been plundered. If you're a Christian, remember that Satan is bound. All he can do is talk. He's been bound. He's going to be bound again. He was bound at the cross. He's bound by the power of the Holy Spirit. And when Jesus returns, he will bind him again. Revelation says he'll be let loose for a thousand years, whatever that means. And then after that, he's bound forever. He loses. Jesus wins and we're on his team. If you're on his team. There's two teams. Pick one. Father, thank you so much this morning, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the family of Jesus that we are part of if we believe. Thank you, God, that you love us enough to give us those Moments where you press us, where you invite us, where you call us. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you that you've bound the enemy, Lord. Thank you that on the cross, not only did you pay for our sins and purchase our righteousness, Lord, but you defeated the enemy. He has nothing to do now but speak. And I pray that we wouldn't listen. Pray that we would have our ears tuned in to you, God. You have the truth. Only you have the words of eternal life, Father. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.